The topic of reincarnation has come up more than a few times here on our podcast, but tonight's episode is dedicated to what I would call one of the most documented and convincing cases ever recorded. It is the life of Dorothy Eadie, who lived from 1904 to 1981, and she was convinced that she was an Egyptian priestess of Seti I, in which she had a condemned love affair with. But Dorothy proved herself time and time again throughout life, even being accepted as one of the first female curators in Egyptology exploration in the Preservation Society, giving them key information forgotten to time for secret burial chambers, gardens, and passages. She described in great detail her life in ancient Egypt, and more often than not, she spoke the truth against non-believers again and again, helped make groundbreaking discoveries in Egyptology. Join us tonight as we're whisked away in the reincarnation story as old as the sands of ancient Egypt. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So when it comes to the history episodes, yes. these are these are Eric's. I'm not a I'm not a history guy. I'm into <laughs> monsters and, and stuff like that. You know, but to be honest, Eric proposed this idea and I started looking it up. And it's actually a very interesting story. You know, this this Dorothy Edie and, and was it Om Om Seti? Om Seti. That she would eventually be known as fascinating. That that she was able to discover antiquities or describe things that no one had ever seen. Supposedly, you know, no modern person had ever seen. Right, right. Yeah, dig here. Yeah. And you'll find this. And, and supposedly she's even, like, the things she was did are still helping archaeologists and Egyptologists find, you know, new burial uh, temples and things like that. So Yeah, because she recorded, wrote down a lot of stuff, like in diaries, and some of that stuff is still being used even after her death, like you said, to uh, to find some of these. And I will say... My wife is who uh, give me this uh, tidbit. She uh, loves Egyptology and uh, had stumbled across this. And honestly, this is another one of those stories. It's like, I can't believe I hadn't heard of this before. And uh, anyhow, I got whisked away. Uh, so definitely a very interesting topic for tonight. Dorothy Louise Eadie was born January 16th, 1904, and she lived until April 21st, 1981. As Bill had stated, she also became known as Amseti, which is a name that she gave herself. Uh, she was a, a British antiques caretaker, and uh, I guess some would consider a folklorist. She was the keeper of the Abydos Temple of Seti I, and a draftswoman for the Department of Egyptian Antiquities. She's known for her belief that in a previous life, she had been a priestess in ancient Egypt. As well as her considerable historical research at Abydos, her life and her work had been the subject of many, many articles, television documentaries, biographies, and I must say podcasts. Now, Dorothy Louisidi was born in London in 1904 as the only child to a Reuben Ernst Eady, a master tailor, and a Caroline Mary Frost Eady, who was, they were all raised there in the coastal town. 
Now, at the age of three, she fell down a flight of steps. We're talking about a very young Dorothy here. And and she was pronounced dead, according to some versions of the story. Literally, like yes. She was, she was put in a bed. They summoned the family doctor, and he was just like, no, this she's gone. A three-year-old, I yeah. mean, falling down the steps. And again, you kind of got to think back. It's These wouldn't be like carpeted steps or anything, most well, likely. Like, yeah, like a Victorian-era home, yeah. you would assume. Uh, so, yes, she was declared dead at the scene, at least on most accounts and most of the research that you do. And then an hour later, they go in, and she's just sitting up in bed. Well, a couple different stories, true to that a point, but the doctor... The family doctor came over, uh, did examine her, uh, did, you know, say, oh, yes, you know, the poor child has has passed. And one of the stories, he is kind of getting ready to walk into the, the living room or whatever to prepare her parents for what sounds like they already knew. And they hear a child playing upstairs in Dorothy's room. Now, the doctor knows full well, I was just there. She's dead. There's no other children. She was the only child. So, he kind of blows it off and, you know, continues with this horrible task that a doctor has. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they hear more commotion. And then soon they see Dorothy coming down the steps. And again, you, you just got to imagine the doctor, the family, you know, everybody. Is this a curse? Is this a blessing? You know, what, what in the world is going on here? Well, again, a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago, medicine was a little crude. Yeah. So. Well, she come down the steps and apparently asked, uh, she goes, when will supper be ready? I'm quite hungry. You know, after somewhat frightening her parents and the doctor, like I said, this three-year-old Dorothy begins exhibiting strange behaviors. And the number one thing that she kept saying was, I want to be taken home. I want to go home. Well, and apparently she had developed foreign accent syndrome. Yes. Which, for those of you who don't know what that is, but it, it is triggered usually by a blow to the head, some sort of head trauma. But Basically, when you recover, when you wake up from that head trauma, you speak in an accent that is not the accent you spoke with when you went into the coma. Kind of strange, yes. Uh, and, and in her case, uh, I believe it would have been an Egyptian accent, mm -hmm. which she suddenly had. And, you know, she she was asking her parents to bring her home. and While I mean, she's at her home? Yeah. You know? So she starts exhibiting these really weird behaviors and talking in a different voice, basically different accent than what she had. So, I mean, I'm sure if, you know, that was your kid, you'd be kind of panicky. Wigged out, to say the least. Now, obviously, this type of behavior caused a little bit of conflict uh, in her early life. Uh, I have down in one example, uh, we were they were interviewing her, and I pulled out some of these uh, excerpts. Her Sunday school teacher uh, requested that her parents keep her away from class because she had uh, compared Christianity with heathen ancient Egyptian religions. Uh, she uh, was expelled from the Dulwich Girls School after she refused to sing a hymn that called on God to curse the swarts of Egyptians. Uh, her regular visits to Catholic Mass, which she liked because it reminded her of her old religion in her terms, were terminated after an interrogation and a visit to her parents by a priest. So she wasn't taken in very well and sounds like she was one of those little fiery. Uh, well, girls of, of Egypt, <laughs> again, knowing, knowing what's to come in her story. I mean, asking God to curse the Egyptians. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, yeah, I wouldn't be okay with that either if I was her. Right, right. Walk right into the Sunday school class. Now, at the age of six, this is three years after this horrific incident that some might say where she actually died, uh, her parents were to be visiting the British Museum. Now, on this particular day, they were unable to acquire a babysitter. That was great for young Dorothy because she got to go along. 
Now, her parents pulled her aside, and I can so much see this because, like, when we've taken our kids to the uh, Chicago Museum and different things, you know, kids, gotta <laughs> be good. No, be, don't be running in the aisles and keep your voices down and, you know, be well behaved. However, after observing a particular photograph in the New Kingdom Temple uh, exhibits room, the young Dorothy Edie called out, There is my home, but where are the trees? Where are the gardens? And I, and I believe she also. Her voice was slightly altered. She sounded like a, like an older older woman. woman yes, very good this. point. Yeah, she wasn't a six year old. It was a, a, an elderly woman. Yeah, someone kind who, of voice. someone with life experience. You know, she goes, "Where are the trees? Where are the gardens?" The temple in the photo was that of Seti the first. Now, the, he was the father of Ramses the Great. Uh, she ran through the halls of the Egyptian rooms, and she said, "I am amongst my people." kissing the statue's feet, kneeling at each one. Even when they got ready to leave the museum, like her mom went to scoop her up and she's like, no, leave me here. These are my people. Yeah. (laughs) So again, in this elderly woman's voice coming out of the six-year-old's body. uh, Now, after this trip, she took every opportunity to visit the British museum rooms. And eventually she met an E.A. Wallace Budge, who was taken by her youthful excitement exuberance exuberance (laughs) excitement i'm looking for the right word she drew a lot of attention from people i'll say that oh can't you imagine these (laughs) i'm sorry but highfalutin people just with their noses up in the air thinking about this child running through but she was taken by this ea wallace budge and he kind of took her under his wing so to speak and encouraged her in the study in particular of hieroglyphs which they said just almost came natural to her. And again, you know, now they say several years after that first visit, six, I'm in, you know, I'm thinking maybe she's about nine years old, maybe 10 years old at this point. But here's one of the key people of the, you know, the British Museum of Antiquities taking this young child, regardless of the age, in and allowing her to see, to view, to to look at these hieroglyphs, she starts telling them things of mistakes they had made with, with relaying the messages. That's the, the thing. Like, you could doubt big chunks of her story. That's fine. Uh, the stories we present here on, on our podcast, you know, did they happen? Did they not happen? We're, we're, we're telling a story. Right. You know, it's up to you. We're telling the story. A lot big of this chunks, also comes directly from Dorothy herself. Yeah, big some chunks of the story. Oh, oh no, her her life was was documented. I mean, she doesn't pass away till 1981. She's people interviewed her, people talked to her, people people were fascinated of her, people were scared of her. <laughs> but like when she's correcting mistakes from in the British Museum, scholars and specialists. Yeah, as a child, you have to assume that she was more familiar with that. And and again, okay, a blow to the head doesn't make you know things that you don't know. Yeah. yeah. So I would love to be a fly in the wall the first time when all these scholars are around and she's looking at the hieroglyphs and she's like, Oh no, you did this wrong. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? But they quickly figured out that, you know, everything that she was saying was true and it helped them connect the dots, so to speak, with a lot of issues they were having with translation. She learned hieroglyphs. She learned to write hieroglyphs. She learned to speak the ancient Egyptian language to write the ancient Egyptian language. And again, a child, nine, 10, maybe 12 years old at best. That's amazing. So after spending some years with, at home and, and, you know, visiting the British Museum at every opportunity, she eventually would move into her grandmother's house in Sussex after barely escaping a bombing raid during World War One. 
again, remember she's born in 1904, so she sees both world wars and, and other major wars in between. So there she continues studying ancient Egypt at the Eastbourne Public Library. And then, weirdly, at the age of 15, she describes a nocturnal visit from the mummy of Pharaoh Seti I. Wow. So, obviously, that's strange in itself. But then she starts having other strange behaviors, uh, sleepwalking, nightmares, things like that, which all this eventually led to her being incarcerated in sanatoriums multiple times. And, you know, back then, sanatoriums weren't exactly... Yeah. Good places to be. So I don't know what toll those might have had on her, but surely they weren't pleasant experiences. But again, I, I got to stress here, you know, we talked about literally from the age of three where she started doing this. Now we're taking it progressively to age 15 or 16. She was being ridiculed. She was being, I mean, shots fired. She stood her ground. You know, she never once just like, oh yeah, you're right. You know, I'm just making this up. She, she could have played those cards and got out of possibly going to these yeah these horrible places but she stood her ground so it um she eventually would leave school at age 16 and just spend her time visiting museums and archaeological sites around britain which was all made possible by her father's uh, investigations in investments into the booming cinema industry so if you were going to get into making movies you know that was the time to do it right and this must first obviously started. been the silent film eras yeah. you know she became a part-time student at plymouth art school and also about this time began collecting what they called affordable Egyptian antiquities, which yeah, I don't know what all that encompasses. I'm sure affordable meant something much different back then. And then at age 27, she began working in London with an Egyptian public relations magazine. She wrote articles and drew cartoons and reflected her political support for an independent Egypt. And it was during her time working here that she would meet her future husband, Imam Abdel Maguid, who was at that time an Egyptian student in, in England. At that st- Time frame, uh, actually about 1931, she and her new husband moved uh, to Egypt. Now, this was a calling that she had been trying to answer literally for most of her life. This was giving her that step to actually set foot on the grounds of Egypt. And when she set foot on Egyptian soil, she literally kissed the ground. Kissed the ground. Right off the the, the plane, just dropped and kissed the ground. Announced she was home to stay. Yes. Now, the couple stayed in Cairo, and uh, her husband's family gave her the nickname Bulbul, which actually translates to, I guess, Nightingale. Their son was named, get this, Seti, very appropriate, uh, from which is derived from uh, her popular name, Am Seti, which simply means mother of Seti. Now, life in Egypt was not easy for Dorothy either. She found herself as described as a dam of water that was overflowing upon arriving there. She began to almost take on an alter ego, speaking more and more in ancient dialects of Egyptian languages, as well as writing in them. She had a chance meeting with a uh, George Reisner secretary who commented on her apparent ability to charm snakes and told her that spells on such powers were early ancient Egyptian, uh, based on early Egyptian literature. Amseti, at this point, this is the name Dorothy has taken, so when we say Amseti, that is, that is Dorothy. She visited the 5th Dynasty Pyramid uh, there in, in Eunice. Now, her in-laws, her husband's family, goes on record later on, and of course, I guess they got, they got the smiling face, and they're trying to be welcoming, but they state that Amseti, 
is more Egyptian than their son or their entire family. <laughs> she knows things about Egypt and the history of their country more so than actual Egyptians who are living there. And apparently, uh, like I said, she kind of took on this alter ego. Uh, some said acting like a priestess, dressing sometimes like a priestess, which she believed she was a reincarnated version of, and handling snakes and charming snakes. And I, I mean, I don't know what ancient Egypt was like during, or not ancient Egypt, but Egypt was like during that time frame. But I would think that would still be a little peculiar. You know, this lady over there playing around with snakes and charms and dressed as a priestess. So again, she fully embraced the role, didn't fight it whatsoever. But people started in Egypt starting coming out. And while she had some of her peers that embraced her, she started getting these labels as a fake, a con artist, even a witch to some of them. Well, I mean, here you have this British woman, English woman, despite you know, all of her outward appearances and well, behaviors. How she may sound. And I mean, I can understand why they would be frustrated or, or charming snakes and yeah, by her. Now, some things, one, when she visited Unis's pyramid, she even knew to like take off her shoes and things like that, which was something no one at that time was doing, but she, she truly treated it as a, as a place of the deserving of respect. And, and during this time, she continued to report apparitions visiting her and out of body experiences, which caused friction between her and the upper middle class family she had married into. During this time, she reported nighttime visits by an apparition of Hora. Mm -hmm. And over the next 12 months, the, the apparition dictated to her her story of her previous life. And again, I'll stress that 12 months, 12 months a yes. year of having these visions. And the story took about 70 pages of cursive hieroglyphic writing to relate. But here, she described her previous life. So this was. You know, why did she understand Egypt the way she did? Why did she feel the way she did? This is supposed to be the life she led while she was, you know, in Egypt. And why I took it, hurrah, was basically coming to her in these night envisions and saying, this is who you yeah. are. This yeah. is not who you were. This is who you are. So the 70 pages describe the life of a young woman in ancient Egypt called Bintreshit, meaning harp of joy. She was described as being of humble origin, her mother being a vegetable seller and her father a soldier during the reign of Seti I. Her mother died when she was three, and she was placed in the temple of Kam el-Sultan because her father could not afford to raise her after that. And there she was raised to be a priestess, which, you know, goes with her behaviors. When she was 12, the high priest asked if she wished to go out into the world or remain and become a consecrated virgin. Now, without understanding what she was doing, she committed to the, the staying at the temple, and without any real alternative anyway, she took the vows. Now, one day, Seti I visited her and spoke to her. They became lovers eating, and I like this, the uncooked goose, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, I never heard that. It was apparently an ancient Egyptian equivalent term for uh, eating the forbidden fruit. So, now, when she became pregnant, she told the high priest who the father was. She was informed of the gravity of her offense against Isis, was so terrible that death would be the most likely penalty at her trial. Unwilling to face the public scandal for Seti, she committed suicide rather than face the trial publicly. Took her own life. And uh, apparently yeah. her unborn child's yeah. life. Yeah. And so here you have this early life in ancient Egypt where she was a priestess. She did, you know, had this, this pious background. And it goes along with everything she said and done up until this point. So, And especially describes some of her visions and predictions around the temple of Seti I. Yeah. Because obviously she spent time there as a priestess. 
Now we're going to jump forward. 1935, uh, Dorothy Eady separated from her husband when he took a teaching job in Iraq. Their son, Seti, uh, stayed with his mother. And two years after the marriage broke down, she went to live in, and I'll probably mispronounce this, Nazlet al-Saman, uh, near the Giza pyramids, where she met the Egyptian archaeologist Salim Hassan of the Department of Antiquities. Oh, now, she also became the first female employee yes, because of this. And that was huge again back then. Now, he employs her as his first uh, direct secretary and draftswoman. She was the department's, as Bill said, first female employee and first assistant to Hassan, according to a Barbara Lesko interview. Uh, she also said she was a great help to the Egyptian scholars, especially Hassan and another scholar named Ahmed Fakhri. Now, correcting their English and writing English language articles for others. So this poorly educated English woman developed in Egypt into a first-rate draftswoman and very prolific and talented writer who even under her own name produced articles, essays, monograms, and books with a huge range of wit and substance. This is according to the Egyptian uh, archaeology documentations and notes. Now, through her keen interest in antiques, uh, she met and befriended many of the famous uh, Egyptologists of the era. Amseti made uh, such significant contributions to Hassan's work that upon his death, she was employed by Amid Fakhri, that name shows up again, another uh, scholar that she had helped, during his uh, excavations at Dashar. Now, Hassan's magnus opus, the 10-volume set of excavations of Giza, gives special mention with sincere gratitude to Dorothy Eady for her editing, drawing, indexing, and proofreading work. She learned from these scholars and the techniques of archaeology whilst they benefited from her expertise in hieroglyphs and drawings. During the same time, she prayed and made frequent offerings to the gods of ancient Egypt. She would often spend the night in the Great Pyramid. Who wouldn't love to do that? But very few people obviously would have the ability. She did! Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I have no interest, but that's me. Oh my gosh, I would be on that (laughs) in a heartbeat. Now, Edie became the object of, as we had said before, more and more village gossip because she would make night prayers and offerings to Horus at the Great Sphinx. Yet she was respected by the villagers for her honesty and not hiding her true faith in the Egyptian gods. And I I like that she also, it said, you know, she also respected the other religions. Yes. She would fast with Muslims during Ramadan and celebrate Christmas with Christians. She didn't throw stones. So she wasn't, you know, like, this is the one true. I'm above you. And, you know, none of that at all. Very, very, you know, passive and, and, and gentle natured. Yeah. I mean, just a very nice woman a by all woman. accounts yeah now ahmad fakhri's uh pyramid research project was terminated early in 1956 this unfortunately left dorothy Eady unemployed now fakhri suggested that she climb the great pyramid and when you reach the top just turn west address yourself to your lord osiris and ask him and i'll probably mispronounce this cuvadis He offered her a choice of taking a well-paid job in the Cairo Records office or a poorly paid position in Abydos as the draftswoman, one who deciphers and registers and makes indexes of findings. She chose the latter. She reported that after her trip to the top of the pyramid and a night vision with Seti I, that he approved of the move. 
Yeah, he, claiming it was the, that the wheel of fate was turning. The wheel of fate. And that this would be a time of testing for her. And, you know, if she was to chase, she would n- uh, now undo her previous life's ancient sin. And th- so basically this was purifying her uh, in a way so maybe she could deal with it and cope with it a little bit more. On March 3rd, 1956, the 52-year-old Amseti uh, left for Abydos. She set up home in the Arabet Abydos, which sits in the cradle of the mountains of Pega the Gap. The ancient Egyptians believed this mountain led to Amenti and the afterlife itself. It was here that she began to be called Amseti because it was customary in Egyptian villages to refer to a mother by the name of her eldest son, and in this case, her only son. Now, Abydos had a special significance for her because this is where she believed her previous reincarnated from self had lived and served in the temple of Seti I. She had made short pilgrimages to the site before, during which she had demonstrated her advanced knowledge. Now, on one of these trips, I love this story, the, the chief inspector from the antiquities department, oh. who knew about her claims, had decided to test her. And I couldn't really tell if he was like trying to prove it to himself or maybe if he was a doubter. But regardless, he decided he wanted to test her by asking her to stand at a particular wall painting in complete darkness. Yeah, in absolute darkness. And then absolute I, darkness. And then identify the paintings. Yes. She was instructed, identify them based on her prior knowledge, since you claim to be a temple priestess. She completed the task successfully, even though the painting location had not yet been published at the time. So yeah. this was not public knowledge. And this, again, that, that goes back to what I said earlier. Hitting your head does not give you knowledge that does not exist. Yes. The, these, the, these were memories. Yes. Memories of a past life. She spent the first two years listing and translating pieces from a recently excavated temple palace. Her work was incorporated into Edward's Gazilius monograph, the palace and magazines attached to the temple of Seti I in Abydos. He expressed particular thanks to her in this work as well and said that he was impressed by the skills that she showed in translation of ignatic fa- uh, facts and texts, along with other members of the Antiquities Department. In 1957, she wrote out a calendar of feast days based on ancient Egyptian texts. And this was something apparently that had never been done before, and it was a better understanding of like the day-to-day life of ancient Egypt. So at the age of 60, in 1964, she faced mandatory retirement from the Antiquities Department, which I'm sure is terrible, right? Mandatory retirement. I'm sure she felt she had more to give, which she did, actually. Oh, my, She was advised to seek part-time work in Cairo, which she did, but she only stayed there one day before returning to Abydos. Uh, The Antiquities Department decided to waive the retirement age rule for her, and she continued to work for another five years until she retired in 1969. Now, what does that tell you? She does have more to give. They know it, you know. And yeah, and honestly, with what she's giving them, why would they force her out? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Unless they were hoping she'd work for free or something. In 1972, she suffered a mild heart attack. uh, And after that, she decided it was too much to maintain her home. Uh, So she moved into a Zariba which is a ramshackle single room made of reeds. Ahmed Salomon, son of the one-time keeper of the Temple of Seti, built a simple mud brick house adjacent to his family home and allowed her to live there. Uh, she said upon moving in, Seti the first appeared and carried out a ritual to consecrate the home for her. In 1980, a team from the BBC arrived to film a documentary called Om Seti and Her Egypt. Uh, by this time, Dorothy had had to use crutches to get around due to her declining health. 
And the next year, a team from National Geographic arrived to film uh, their documentary, Egypt, Quest for Eternity. Now, filming took place on March of 1981, which coincided with Amseti's 77th birthday. Uh, they said at that point in time, she was in a lot of pain, but she was also in good cheer. Uh, the crew carried her up to the Temple of Seti for filming, and this would be her last visit before her death. Now, Amseti once said at, at some time in, in during these, these years, death holds no terror for me. I'll just do my best to get through the judgment. I'm going to come before Osiris, who will probably give me a few dirty looks because I know I've committed <laughs> some things I shouldn't have. <laughs> now, since Muslims and Christians would not let a heathen be buried in their graveyards, she built her own underground tomb decorated with a false door. On April 10th, 1981, she gave away her two cats because she felt she could no longer care for them appropriately. And on April 21st, she died in Abydos. Local health authorities refused to allow her to be buried in her tomb Aww. that she had made, which, yeah, it's, that seems That's sad. But, I mean, I, I kind of understand. I get it. but And so she was interred in an unmarked grave facing west in the desert outside a Coptic cemetery. And that's that's her life story. Now, you said you, you had some, some things. Well, I, I wanted to kind of go through, honestly, the list of predictions, finds, whatever, however you want to translate it, that Dorothy Edie, a.k.a. Omseti made, is still coming true well, I, with I her writings and documentation. Even, even just like a year or so ago, they found another burial location that she— Off of some of her notes. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to take, you know, the, the key points to this point in time, uh, the gardens at the Temple of Seti, the first. Now, you know, early on at like age six, she was there with her mom and dad in the British Museum. And she said, this is my home. But where are the trees? Where are the gardens? When she went to Egypt uh, and was in a position where she could take the archaeologists and stuff there, she told them exactly. I mean, and imagine now. This temple is still partially covered in sand. I mean, it was kind of a new, newer discovery. And she's like, no, all this sand needs to come off. You'll find like X number of steps here that lead up from, from this direction. And, you know, here off to this side, that's where you'll find a small pool. And that's where the trees were planted. And that's where the garden is. And, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And every place that she said there was something, they dug it up. And sure enough, it was there. So that was quite an undertaking predictions she secondly predicted the hidden library chamber at the base of one of the foot of the sphinx uh and as bill said at one point in her life she was going and doing prayer rituals at the base of the sphinx now recent ground penetrating radar has revealed that there is indeed a secret chamber under one of the feet of the sphinx however with it being the sphinx Egyptian uh, authorities are a little hard about saying, oh, yeah, let's just dig it up and find out. But the fact of the matter is that the ground penetrating radar at least proves that there is a room there. Is it a library? Maybe, maybe not. Number three. I mean, if I'm said he says it is. I'm going I'm to say, say I'm going to lean towards, yes, <laughs> there's a library there. Number three, uh, she started talking about Queen Nefertiti's lost tomb. Uh, and she said, oh, well, it will be found there in the Valley of the Kings. Now, at the time, of course, all of these different kings' uh, tombs have been discovered, including King Tut and Hanum, uh, King Tut. And she says, well, you, you're not looking in the right spot. And a lot of the archaeologists were saying, no, we've covered that area. It is not there. And she goes, Nefertiti was the mother of King Tut. He protected his mother's tomb. It is beneath King Tut's tomb. 
And so later on, many years in life, ground penetrating radar, guess what? They find a wall with a secret passage that leads to a, a tunnel that brand, or wise off. And there is a small possible tomb there. But again, with it being King Tut's tomb, they're, yeah. you know, they're reluctant about going in there and digging. Still, as you said, if Mom said he says it's there, there's something there, you know, maybe so. She was right enough that you, uh, you, you can't really discount it, right? Right, so. right. Fourth, she told them back at the Temple of Seti I where a secret chamber door was that would allow them access to an area, I guess, that maybe had collapsed or somehow wasn't easy to get to. And this was like six or eight foot below the sand levels. But she goes, no, it's right here. She literally took one of the diggers out by hand and said, here, dig. <laughs> and so within like two days, they dug this up. And indeed, they found a secret uh, doorway, which led down a corridor and boom, right to the area that they were trying to get to. Fifth, she helped decipher and correct errors in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Um, you know, we talked about that early on in the podcast. Uh, these specialists and stuff were just awestruck. They, they couldn't connect all the dots, so to speak. And she came in and she's, oh, that's because you're taking this symbol, meaning this. No, that's that symbol. This one means this. And it all flowed together. And sixth, lastly, she shared and practiced daily prayers of a priestess of Seti. Uh, back in that time frame, that wasn't something that was really documented a lot. So she started practicing this. People started following her and actually documenting it, and then later found scrolls and parchment that talked about this, undiscovered previously. Now, I'll play both sides of the fence. Scientific arguments for these same things. We had talked about upon her head trauma from the fall when she was only three, she had developed this foreign accent syndrome, uh, speaking in not only Egyptian dialect, but an ancient Egyptian dialect. Uh, this clinical, scientific, as Bill had, had touched upon, still occurs today, although not super frequent, with people with head drama. So they're like, well, that explains why she spoke in this gibberish. She says it was ancient Egyptian. Some people agreed, but do they really know? You know, it's just something that happens. Number two, she developed great skill and comprehension in the Egyptian language and hieroglyphs. Some would say, well, of course she did. At age nine, she was taken in by scholars of ancient Egypt, allowed to view, study, read things that most people wouldn't. And at that young tender age, most children do their most of their learning. So why wouldn't she? She grew up that way. She was taught that way. So they play that card. Number three, how did she know about the gardens around the temple of Seti I? Scientists state there were several mentions of the gardens that later surfaced after Dorothy predicted it. One in particular book was even published featuring diagrams and sketches. Okay, but if the documents were undiscovered, would Dorothea have had access to them? Some may say yes, some may say no. Maybe she stumbled across them while spending her time in the Egyptian Antiquities Department? Second, the published book. I loved this one. They mentioned it had sketches and diagrams. Some of those were done by Dorothy Eady. That book came out like two years after she came forward, and it was a book that was in process before she predicted it, but was not published until after she predicted it. Well, and if they're her sketches. The author even came forward and said, yeah, I got a lot of my information and these <laughs> sketches from Dorothy Eadie. So, yeah, yeah, go back to your holes. I don't buy that one. Fourthly, still others just claim she was a con woman. 
she took advantage of people's desire at the time. And you got to keep in mind, there was a huge influx of interest in ancient Egyptology. It was during the time of the King Tut discoveries and, and all of this. But I would argue, though, that everybody that met her, that, that documented encountering her, said she was a really sweet woman. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I guess if you're going to be a con person, being a sweet old woman <laughs> would be the way to go. Might, be, might have some perks. But would these top scholars and Egyptologists fall for that? I mean, they're the specialists in the field. They're the best of the best, so to speak. Yeah. You know, remember, those specialists came to her. She didn't go to them trying to con them in on beliefs. They came to her and, you know, offered positions never before offered to a woman, much less a woman at, at her tender young age. So... We present the story here on the podcast, but I am a firm believer this is one of the most well-documented cases of what I consider true reincarnation. That's just my stance. It, it, it's, it's hard to argue against this one. It just, it's, there's too much where she, she knew things she shouldn't have known. Right. So, so after 100 episodes, Eric, mm. I think it's time for our, our podcast I to feel grow old. a little. 100 episodes. 100 episodes. I feel old. I, I had this idea, and I'm sorry I didn't run it past you sooner, but- uh, Ooh, I like surprises. We would do what I call a nightmare headline, or headlines, uh, cue dramatic um, news intro, <laughs> or, or may, maybe something more appropriate to Nightmares on Lost <laughs> Highway. We'll figure out whatever sound. I'll put it in here. So, what I thought, Eric, is that we would find a, a modern headline, you and I, uh, that sort of relates to the topic at hand, but try to find something here in the last year or so, just some piece of news that's that's related. And so, it would kind of expand what we're covering and give us a couple- A new interesting little closing. Something, something to close out with. I like it. I like it. And and like I said, this this kind of, you know, the next couple episodes will all be me, and then maybe, maybe we can both bring one, you know, the next time around. So- What you got for this one? From Art News on January 3rd, 2023. This, this one's new. Uh, the headline is, Archaeologists find nine mysterious crocodile heads hidden in Egyptian tomb. A discovery was made by a team from the Center of Mediterranean Archaeology at the University of Warsaw. And during the excavation of the Theban Necropolis, an ancient burial site in Upper Egypt, the remains were hidden inside of two tombs belonging to high-ranking officials. And archaeologists describe this finding as one of a kind. They never encountered anything like this. This is just the skulls of crocodiles. The two tombs contain nine crocodile skulls Hmm. of the large variant native to Egypt's freshwater habitats, which, you know, I think we're all familiar. Right. Very large crocodiles. Uh, They were wrapped in linen, but lacked any form of preservation. They were not mummified in any way. Uh, To quote the, the archaeologists, many crocodile mummies have been found along the Nile. They are all mummies of whole crocodiles, though, sacred animals of the god Sobek. Uh, they say finding them unpreserved is unprecedented. I would think they would just turn to dust. Yeah, ch- just the heads, not the entire body, were in the tomb. But what, us, what was also unusual is, is not only had they not been mummified, these animals were also interred with the humans rather than in the catacombs of the sacred animals. So they were mixed. This is not normal. Like, they found crocodile mummies before, but not. Just the head and not buried with the people. So they were segregated basically with the animals. Yeah. Very interesting. So I found that to be uh, kind of 
Kind of weird. That is, that is. So, uh, but again, this is something new I, I think we could do going forward. Just to add a little bit to the podcast. These nightmare headlines. I like it. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed yet another installment of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Don't forget to try to believe. Okay. Um, but, uh, just break my broke, fingernail, dude. Broken, <laughs> broken nail. <laughs> wow. I really felt strongly about that. <laughs> but, uh, okay. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, <laughs> using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.